Welcome to Space Chai, where we spill all the tea on all things space. I'm your host, Bailey Wilson. Um, I'm originally from Sacramento, and I'm currently studying at USC. Um, I'm a political science major with an emphasis on legal studies. And I'm your co-host. My name is Beauty, but for all of our viewers today, for those of you who are watching, I go by DC, short and sweet. I'm also from Washington, DC. And similar to Bailey, I'm also a student at the University of Southern California. I'm studying in the Price School of Public Policy, um, doing data science and public policy. All right. So today in our first episode, we are covering a very interesting and important topic, which is also the foundation for this podcast. Would you like to introduce it, DC? Yes. Today, we are talking about space policy. So DC, what's the tea? I know what space is, as our viewers probably do. And I know that space policy probably has something to do with policy and space and how they interact. Um, but what is it technically? Like, I know that it has a correlation between space and government, but how are they intertwined and what does that connection look like? Yeah, so space policy is all about how governments or sometimes groups of governments decide on and manage anything related to space exploration and use. Okay, that sounds super interesting. Uh, so what you're saying is that space policy is sort of a way to regulate space activity, but also promote humanity's involvement? Yeah, so let's go a little bit more into depth about this. So the Office of Space Commerce describes space policy as the decision-making process for or application of a state's public policy regarding space flight and uses of outer space for civilian and military purposes. It's also got like a really big research component to it as well, because there's a lot of national space programs that are often conducting or funding research in space science. Okay, so what you're getting at this time is the space policy is like a management system used by different groups of people with the same goal to understand the inner workings of space. Yeah, so from my understanding, space policy is also like a subsect of defense policy. So there's a lot of applications with spy satellites and anti-satellite weapons, but there's also like the intersection between commerce and policy with government regulation of third-party activities, right? Like com commercial communication satellites, private space flight. Um, so it's extremely vast in its applications, and it also encompasses the creation and application of space law. And there's a lot of space advocacy organizations that exist to like support the cause of space exploration. So all in all, it's just a way to manage all of the military and civilian activities that people want to conduct in outer space. <laughs> All right. So now that we got a good base for our video, let's get into it. Yeah. So uh, one thing that's really interesting is like the background behind us. And I'm just going to kind of let you like introduce what's going on a little bit. All right. So behind us, we have the California Science Center, which is pretty cool because it has a bunch of good like space technology and definitely an interesting view. Yeah, it feels super exciting. Like we're truly in the right place at the right time, you know, and it's gorgeous out here as well in sunny Southern California. I mean, actually, it's a little cloudy right now, but it's kind of starting to clear up. So that's really good, but I'm absolutely thrilled to be filming this here. You know, how do you feel about where we are right now? I think it's crazy that we're sitting in front of so much history. Uh, the technology at display at the California Science Center is truly ad admirable because we have no clue that hundreds of years ago, our interactions with space would ultimately look like this. I mean, if you would have told Galileo that we have sent a man to the moon, he'd probably explode. So I think that the artifacts are an important part of understanding our evolution with space and where we hope to end in the near future. Yeah, I think like people just don't realize how like big space is, right? Um, like our understanding of size is sometimes like warped, I think, because when we look at all these images and videos online, we're never realizing the scale of how big these things really are, right? Like, for example, like um, looking at Niagara Waterfalls as your, you know, PC desktop and then actually being at Niagara Waterfalls and then you go there and you're like, oh my God, this is huge. We are literally this tiny. It's super interesting. So there is definitely a massive difference. Is that how it felt when you saw the Endeavor shuttle? Oh yeah, definitely. So I'm like a really tiny person for everyone who's like watching and listening to us today. I'm 5'1". So like... I'm very pequeño. <laughs> um, so like seeing the shuttle in real life gave me a glimpse of, again, just how vast the borders of even our planet are. When I saw the shuttle the first time, I think I remember just seeing how big even the auditorium was where they were housing the shuttle. It was like an Olympic-sized gym, guys. 
Um, even the columns which they used to prop up the shuttle, uh, they were massive and they were so tall that we couldn't even touch the shuttle. It was so tall that like, even if you were like 6'1", 6'2", you wouldn't be able to like touch the shuttle just because of how big the holes were that were like propping up the shuttle in the museum. I found some data actually on the dimensions of the shuttle, which I think is like super interesting. So the Space Endeavor shuttle was about like 122 feet or for those of you who are using the metric system, like 37 feet meters long. So that's like if you took a 10, 11 story building and you laid it on its side or in other terms, it's like it's as big as a blue whale, which is the largest animal on the planet. And its wingspan is like 78 feet, so like 23.8 meters. And that's the width of a Boeing 737 plane. And it also weighed around like 173,000 pounds in total without any kind of payload. So there was nothing on it. It's like if you took 30 to 35 average size cars and you stacked them on top of each other and you were under that weight. Like that's how heavy it was. So it's just a huge spacecraft. The size of the spacecraft truly bewilders me. I mean, like if you really think about it, space travel is just sending a human attached to a rocket into outer space. Just some little history about the Endeavor uh Endeavor space shuttle that we got from the California Science Center. It was originally uh, used as a replacement for the Challenger shuttle, which unfortunately had a terrible accident January 28th in 86. So the United States basically built Endeavor to be in its place. Although similar to the Challenger space shuttle, it does have some like key changes um, in technological advancements, including updated steering mechanisms, plumbing and electrical connections, allowing longer duration of space exploration, and a drag chute that lessens the uh, wear and tear of the braking system on the space shuttle. Some little more history, we got uh, the Endeavour's first mission, which was on May 1992. That mission was called Mission STS-49. The mission's primary goal was to capture and repair a stranded communication satellite called Intelsat-6, uh, which was successfully achieved, showcasing the shuttle's capabilities and satellite uh, servicing. Endeavor also played a critical role in assembling the International Space Station. Uh, if you numerous missions, missions to the ISS carrying equipment, supplies, and modules. One of its notable missions, STS-61, the first Hubble Space Telescope servicing mission in 1993, where significant upgrades and repairs were made to the Hubble Space Telescope, which is how we are able to get images of deep space. Um, its final mission was STS-134 on May of 2011. Its last mission was flown in order to deliver alpha magnetic spectrometer and other supplies to the ISS. That's literally incredible. Like if you think of that, like even what you just said, like they literally built part of the International Space Station, like that one shuttle, they literally just took people, strapped them onto a rocket, shot them into space, and then we're like, yeah, we're gonna build all this stuff out there, YOLO. That's insane. Um, I remember they had like images of the shuttle's journey through actually Los Angeles when the shuttle came back from its final mission. So again, like for some context, Endeavour was retired along with the rest of the space shuttle fleet after its final mission. And this was like a super publicized event. They paraded the shuttle down the streets of LA. And this was in like October 2012. And then when it returned it again, through like massive crowds, there's like pictures in the museum where you can see the shuttle going down the streets of LA through like residential neighborhoods and there's people like on either sides like people coming out of the windows like kids on the roof like everyone was treating this like it was like the most amazing spectacle they had ever seen because when else are you just gonna have space shuttle like roaming through your neighborhood just like oh hey mom like guess what i saw outside a space shuttle that's definitely gonna draw a lot of attention which i think is super cool Really sad that I wasn't in LA when that happened, but I was, you know, a kid. <laughs> so anyway, they journeyed it all the way from LAX, um, all the way to the California Science Center Museum, which is right behind us and it's next to USC's campus. And then it was transported again through the city st streets. And now it's on exhibit at the museum. But I think they're going to move it soon. Yes, yes. Do you know uh, why they chose the California Science Center specifically? Like, why did they choose to place out of all places in the United States? Yeah, that's really true. Like when you think about it, they really could have put the shuttle anywhere. So um, so California has like a very deep rooted history with space and space exploration. Like actually while we're on this topic, I think it's notable to mention that we have a statue of Neil Armstrong um, at university's campus near Viterbi, which is like our engineering school. So there's a whole statue of him there because he was a USC um, 
alumni. He graduated from USC in 1970 with his master's in aerospace engineering. And then he also delivered a graduation speech to USC graduates. Also really sad that I missed that. Um, but to the point about why the California Science Center was chosen, I think it's because they won um, the proposal from NASA. So basically, museums and institutions like across the country have like they'll outline proposals for how they'll display and use the shuttle to educate the public and honor like the legacy of the program. And the California Science Center's proposal was chosen out of that. I also think it's that California, as I said, has been a really big hub for aerospace exploration. So many key contractors and businesses involved in the space shuttle program were based in California. So placing Endeavor in the state kind of serves as a, like a tribute to the region's substantial contributions to the space program. Oh, okay. Period. Stan Neal. I mean, he was able to work towards his master's at USC while also training to be the first person to the moon. For real, that's like actually one hell of an extracurricular. You've got that right. Well, before we start comparing uh, what we're doing in college to Neil Armstrong, let's move into a bigger question as it relates to the Endeavor and space policy, uh, which I'm curious to know, as our viewers are probably, or how is our current version of space policy different from how it was back then? Yeah, so there's a lot of new developments and changes to space policy. Um, again, it's a very encompassing subject. So I'll start by explaining a little bit more about like the different facets of space policy. So first, space policy encompasses government operations. And what this means is like sending rockets and satellites into space, both for learning more about the universe, that's like the science part, and for security reasons, like keeping an eye on Earth with spy satellites or developing ways to protect these satellites. It's not just about what the government does directly, though, because space policy also covers the rules and regulations for private companies that are getting into space-related activities. So think about businesses that are launching their own communication satellites or like taking tourists into space. That's real. I mean, entrepreneurs have already started finding ways to commercialize space. Um, I mean, freeze-dried foods, for example. I've had a freeze-dried peach uh, actually a few days ago. And it was so good. And it was crazy to think that, like, I'm hypothetically eating something that, like, somebody could eat in space. Like, it's crazy that, like, that's something that could be in an astronaut's diet, like, while they're in space. SpaceX is an obvious example of this. I mean, SpaceX has uh, been at the forefront of trying to democratize communications by launching several small satellites called Starlink. There are also other companies like Virgin Galactic and Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin, which are also trying to build and create a market for the space tourism industry where people can travel into space, see Earth, and just live in space for a minute. Space is becoming a medium for a new market, and like all markets, governments are trying to intervene to benefit the producers and the consumers. That's where the policy aspect comes in. And then there's like the whole legal side to it as well, right? Like you, you talked about how SpaceX, they want to create these like communication satellites and put them out into space, and then you have Virgin Galactic, and they want to send tourists into space. And so there's like government intervention in all these markets, right? And so that's why you also need law. And so this is where we get into that. So space law, which sounds like really futuristic, it's actually a huge deal because it's about making sure that as we explore and use space, we do it in a way that's fair and peaceful for everyone. Because like if you think about it, for example, with the in scientific revolution, with the industrial revolution, with the age of the Internet, in all of these different scenarios where new markets were being explored and you had all these different companies coming up and taking space, there wasn't really any law to accommodate their expansion into that space. So what happened was all of these um, you know, new players in the market were able to really take over the market and then the law had to catch up to them. And so that's why we're trying to get ahead of the problem now with space law of like, okay, before we send everything and everyone out into space, how are we going to legally deal with this? And I definitely feel like people are going to use space law as a way to cover their butts. Like all type of law is used. Oh yeah, litigation. Um, that's definitely there. And I can only imagine like the space lobbyists and firms that will probably develop over time to help different actors with pushing out legislation and space law that benefits their interests. But conceptually, the laws are supposed to help the public. Um, lastly, there are these groups and organizations that really push for space exploration but they're not part of the government and their ideas and support play a big role in shaping space policy. Um, we refer to them as kind of the unofficial actors of space, right? So anyway, here's some key facets of space policy as we go down. So one will be like national commitment. So countries often formulate national space policies that outline their commitment to space exploration, commercial space activities, and responsible space behavior. 
There's also the commercial space sector. So many space policies recognize the importance of a robust commercial sector for economic development and innovation. There's also the international cooperation aspect of it because it often involves international cooperation and adherence to treaties and agreements governing the use of outer space so you can be safe and stable and secure. Then you also have the space exploration part of space policy. So you have a lot of policies that may address human exploration programs and scientific research endeavors in space. Then there's national security. So countries like the U.S., they emphasize the role of national security in space. So they recognize like the importance of it for military effectiveness and overall security. Also keeping in mind that the U.S. spends like more than like the next 26 nations combined in military spending. So if there's any kind of military implication, you know, like the U.S. is on it. And then lastly, there's like the academic and research focus. So again, like a lot of universities will, you know, study space and research with journals and academic institutions dedicated to exploring its various facets. So there's a lot, and I mean a lot, excuse me, we have a bunch of like disturbance in the background. I think that's like our weekly biker gang, just like making the rounds around campus. Oh my God. I love their, it's I love their <laughs> No, because every single week, guys, like every single week, there will be like an ambulance, a fire truck. And then every single week, there's also going to be like the biker gangs that literally show up. Yeah, I've literally seen a car fly over a center divide literally down the street. So <laughs> definitely a lot of crazy stuff happening at yeah. USC's campus. That's just LA for you. For real, for real. But anyways, okay. So yeah, there's a lot of aspects that space policy encompasses. And I'm sure that it'll continue to be more expansive and integrate changes into more and more areas as time goes on and humanity becomes more, you know, technologically advanced. And I'm also curious to hear from your side about like the history of space policy and our journey, um, seeing as you're the resident political science theorist. So fill us in on the tea, like what happened? Okay, so basically humans have always been intrigued uh, with space. And I think a big part of that is it's kind of available to everybody. I mean, you can just look up and you're like essentially looking at outer space. Um, so no matter where you were in the world, uh, space is directly above you. It's not something that you really like have to travel to see like in depth. This curiosity has driven humanity to want to explore space, which leads us uh, to the modern concept of space policy. A big part of this uh, concoction of space and government uh, has been apparent since about like the mid 20th century uh, with the Cold War and the space race. Uh, the Cold War was a war that did not physically have any fighting between one another, but it was a competition of who was better. United States or Russia. Uh, this competition was due to the rise of communism in the Soviet Union, and uh, the Soviets believed that their idea uh, of how the economy should run was better than the United States' economic mor morality of capitalism. This initial debate almost uh, resulted in a race for arms and the development of destructive weapons, but was converted into a race to claim the undiscovered frontier of space. Uh, the space race was a way for both sides to prove their intellectual superiority in the advancing world. And winning this race would not only come with bragging rights, but it would also determine who would have dominance in worldly affairs. The Soviets eventually were able to beat the United States in putting a human to space uh, with the Sputnik 1, leaving America heartbroken. Uh, America was not out of the running, however. Uh, following the orbital mission of the Sputnik, President John F. Kennedy gave his famous moon speech. Yeah, so funnily enough, I remember reading about this on Rice University's website because they're located in Houston and they have a lot of connections um, with space. That's why I'm pretty sure they say like um, something like, what is it, Houston? Something. Houston, we have a problem. Yeah, Houston, yes. we have a problem. So yeah, definitely like space and Texas have always just had this like connection for me. But um, I believe they also developed the lunar dust detector that was used in the first Apollo mission at Rice. And it's also cool because Kennedy giving that speech at Rice University and the university's legacy with space has definitely showed just how important academic research and institutional collaboration is when dealing with space policy. Yeah, they definitely give USC a run for their money. <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, we have Neil Armstrong, though, so I'm pretty happy that we've been able to accomplish that with the USC community. Um, but anyway, moving back to the topic at hand, tell me more about, you know, the moon speech and the history that was like following. Yeah. So what I was saying, uh, Kennedy's famous moon speech uh, 
gave the United States kind of like a hope in that race that it wasn't over and that the United States could still prove itself by sending a man to the moon, uh, which was never done before. Um, this was eventually achieved in 1969, and the United States secured its spot as the first country on the moon. The space race was not only an incentive for humanity to create technological advancements, but it was also an incentive for a legal aspect of what occurs in space. Because space navigation was a new concept, space policy has been able to cultivate the battle between two different ideologies into a non-competitive goal for individual countries and the paths that each other take heading into the future. Yeah, I think based on what you said about like the space race, I also think it's worth mentioning that a lot of early space exploration that was done by the US came from like a competitive nature. Um, I mean, I'm a really competitive person, so I really understand that, you know, a lot of other students here, I think might relate to that. Yeah, I definitely those of you who are watching out there, if you're also really competitive, you know what I mean? Like, we don't want to be in second, third place. So I think I think the entire space race was structured from like a competition between two opposing countries with differing political ideologies. So for a disagreement to eventually result in incredible research definitely shows kind of the top dog mentality that the U.S. has, um, as well as other countries, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I think it's definitely clear that the United States wanted to claim uh, the frontier first. And I think their drive to achieve the goal allowed the United States not only to secure a spot as a leader in space exploration, but also remain like a top dog in like worldly affairs. Yeah. So to your point about like the competitive nature of space exploration, actually, what I found as an interesting fact was that Buzz Aldrin had done spacewalks first in previous NASA missions. And like, despite him lobbying to be the first man on the moon, they actually chose Armstrong because they said that the, he had a lack of ego and a calm confidence. And so they thought that it would be symbolic for him to be the first man on the moon. So even just for that, like being the first man on the moon, there was a bit of internal competition. Oh, that's super interesting. Um, where did you pull the information? Yeah, it was an article from Business Insider that I found. And I also got some information from an article written by history.com. Um, so it's super interesting. And again, like I highly encourage you guys to look into it. There's a lot of fun space data. But anyways, back to what you were saying. Yeah, so following JFK's notorious speech, uh, NASA implemented the Apollo program. Uh, the Apollo program's purposes uh, were to advance U.S. national affairs within space. This was done by creating new technologies that allowed the United States uh, preeminence in space, scientific exploration of the moon, and developing human capabilities in the lunar environment. Uh, from the Apollo era, the United States was successful in six lunar landings and 11 crewed missions to space. These were the early accounts of the U.S. exploration, of space and set the precedent of future missions. Yeah, so interestingly enough, we touched on space law earlier and we talked about kind of the whole litigation thing, right? So during the Apollo program, litigation was passed that allowed NASA to continue their missions. Um, so without these litigations, like NASA would not have been able to complete their notorious missions like the moon landing. And because they are a federal agency, the government gives clearance on NASA activity. So for example, like if the U.S. had not given NASA permission to continue their work on putting a man on the moon, whether it be due to a lack of funding or a distrust in NASA's work, um, the U.S. hypothetically could still be stuck at ground zero when within the world of space exploration. So NASA was given approximately $25.8 billion then, which is now like $257 billion due to inflation. Um, that's insane of a jump. But this funding was vital to the space program, and it's important to mention because these initial space policies have allowed for the U.S. to continue their space endeavors, basically due to like NASA's success during the Apollo program. And again, like that was because they had to go through these like series of litigations and come up with these laws and policies and get clearances and go through the whole bureaucratic process and then get funding. And then it's a whole thing. Yeah, um, the Apollo program was just like the beginning of a whole era for space-related uh, exploration as well as policy. The space shuttle era began in 1981, sending 135 missions and 852 shuttle flyers into space. Uh, spacecrafts during this era carried people into orbit re repeatedly, launched and recovered and repaired satellites, conducted cutting-edge research, and built the largest structure in space, the International Space Station. Yeah, and I think that's a great segue into the international cooperation aspect of space policy, as I kind of mentioned earlier. 
And there's some history to that as well. So essentially, international space law became a thing after the launch of the Soviets' first artificial satellite, Sputnik 1. I think that's one thing that um, we should just clarify really quickly. When they launched Sputnik 1, they didn't launch like the first human into space. They launched the first satellite into space. And that was a little <laughs> tidbit My that bad. we missed. No, you're so good. Okay. Um, but yeah, since this time, space law has evolved and assumed more importance as humans have been able to develop and uh, you know, user use more space-based resources. So as we kind of discussed before, uh, space law is an area of the law that encompasses national and international treaties governing activities in outer space. And there are currently six treaties that make up the body of international space law. So there's five declarations and principles, and then the um, the other United Nations and General Assembly resolutions. I should also mention that the UN Office for Outer Space Affairs, they're the UNOOSA, is primarily responsible for the implementation of international space law, and they help advise governments and non-governmental actors on space law. So, starting off with these treaties in chronological order, boy, do we have some data for y'all. Okay, so first there's the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, and it's officially known as the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space. It's a really long name. Um, including the moon and other celestial bodies. <laughs> There's more to the name. But this is the cornerstone of international space law. It describes the basic framework for international space law, including the principle that space should be used for the benefit of all countries, and that space is free for exploration and use by all states. Then we have the Rescue Agreement in 1968, formerly known as the Agreement on the Rescue of Astronauts, the Return of Astronauts, and the Return of Objects Launched into Space. Whoever is naming these treaties, don't. Like, <laughs> these names are so long, but this treaty outlines the responsibilities of nations regarding the assistance to astronauts in distress and the return of astronauts and objects that land outside the territory of the launch state. Then we have um, the Liability Convention of 1972, officially the Convention on International Liability for Damage Caused by Space Objects. This agreement deals with the issue of liability for damage caused by space objects, including damage to the surface of the Earth, to aircraft, or in outer space. And then there's the Registration Convention in 1975. That basically requires states to furnish the United Nations a list of all objects they launch into outer space for purposes of tracking and identifying. <laughs> I mean, we wouldn't, more, we wouldn't want more space chuck ending, in, ending up in the universe, now would we? Yeah, and that actually foreshadows another discussion about space debris and all the impacts that that can have, but... That's a discussion that we'll delve more into like during another episode. What DC's trying to say is you should follow our podcast so you're here for the tea when it spills. Oh yeah, like the tea is piping hot. But let's get back to some more cold hard facts about the treaties and then we'll, you know, break away from some more of the data driven, driven stuff. Um, okay, so we've covered four so far and then there's two more major ones. The fifth is the Moon Agreement of 1979. Officially, the agreement governing the activities of states on the moon and other celestial bodies. This is the most recent and least adopted of the space treaties. It extends to the principles of the Outer Space Treaty to the moon and other celestial bodies, proposing a framework for the potential use of these bodies, including provisions related to their exploration and exploitation. And finally, we have the Space Station Agreement of 1998. So while this is not a part of like the core five UN space treaties, it's an important international agreement relevant to space law because it concerns the cooperation on the civil international space station and formalizes the legal and policy framework for the management and operation of the ISS. All right. So I hope you, the viewers, have learned a lot about uh, space policy by this point. Uh, I know I have, for sure. Uh, I didn't realize that we have had so many laws that, about outer space conducted this early on especially when space policy has become something relatively popular as of recently. However, I do recall the partial test ban treaty uh, from reading some related. So yeah, one of the other important uh, space law treaties uh, came to be, but uh, wasn't adopted uh, by the UN General Assembly until later was the partial ban treaty. Uh, the partial ban treaty being uh, the first was signed by the governments of the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, and the United States in Moscow on August 5th in 1963, before it was opened for signature by other countries. 
the Partial Ban Treaty was enacted on October 10th, uh, 1963. Uh, the treaty was basically uh, like put in place to prohibit a nuclear weapon test or other nuclear explosions in the atmosphere, um, in the outer space, and underwater. Uh, it's also uh, prohibited uh, nuclear explosions underground if they cause or if they cause radioactive debris to be present outside of the territorial limits of the state under whose jurisdiction or control the explosions were conducted. Uh, it was seen the first step, or it was seen as the first step towards a global nuclear disarmament. I think it's important to note while the partial ban or partial test ban treaty applied uh, to many areas in, the, in which testing was prohibited. Underground uh, was not explicitly stated in, as an off-limits area, so hundreds of nuclear tests were conducted underground in the following decades. Uh, nations exploited this level. To your point earlier about nations using laws as a way to avoid litigation and manipulate it to their benefit, like, it's quite funny that you mentioned this. Yeah, I think uh, sometimes that countries uh, think about what is not allowed as uh, rather than not thinking about like what is off limits. That makes yeah, sense. it's more of just like it's not really thinking about like, OK, like what can we not do? It's more of like, OK, what did they say that we couldn't do? Like, what can we technically yeah. do? Like the treaty really covered everything, but because they didn't explicitly say underground, Countries were like, oh, that's what we're going to do. Um, so it's really funny. Yeah, the government's practically invented gaslighting at this point. I swear. It's like, you never said that we couldn't do this. Oh, my God. I'm weak. Okay, so on the topic of government again, I think it's pretty interesting to talk about uh, where space policy is headed in the future. And now that we got all the historical context out of the way, the presidential elections over the past couple of years have introduced uh, drastic changes in the systems of thinking and opinions of the administration. So let's spill our tea on that. All right. Yeah. So I think the future of space policy is looking really bright, um, at least from the side of the U.S. I think it would be worthwhile for us to get some context on how space policy works at the U.S. government level before I start talking about like the different administrations approach to space policy and what work they have done on that end. So I'll momentarily defer to the political science major. Yes, poli-sci represent. All right, so regarding the U.S., uh, there are both official and unofficial actors that are responsible uh, for the development of space laws. Uh, when we look at official actors, the United States uh, space policy is drafted by the executive branch under the president and submitted for approval by Congress. Uh, the president also has the authority to negotiate with other nations and science based treaties on behalf of the United States. We also have other federal agencies included in the development of space policy, uh, including NASA, NOAA, uh, and the Department of Defense, as well as the Space Force, the Air Force, and the Office of uh, Science and Technology, as well as the Office of Management and Budgeting. Yeah, as um, you guys will probably start to pick up on this theme as we kind of did when we were doing the research for this episode, bureaucracy is expansive and there's so yes. many people involved with everything. Um, so there's a lot of offices. But do you think you could break down like the official and unofficial actors a bit further? I think it'd be super cool to get some details on what each of them manages and what they do in the process as it relates to space policy? Yeah, I definitely can. Uh, so breaking down the official actors a little further, uh, the president is legally responsible for deciding uh, which space activities fall under the civilian and military areas. Uh, civilian and scientific uh, space policy is carried out by the National Aeronautics and Space uh, Administration, or as we know it, NASA. Military activities like communication and some intelligence, mapping, and missile defense are carried out by various agencies under the Department of Defense. The Department of Commerce's National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or uh, the NOAA, operates uh, various services with space components, such as the Landsat program, uh, which is responsible for acquiring satellite imagery of 
or unofficial actors such as the space advocacy organizations uh, include the Space Science Institute, the National Space Society, the Space Generation Advisory Council, the American Astronomical Society, the American Aeronautical uh, Society, the Planetary Society, and the National Academies, for example, um, provided advice for the government to lobby for space goals. Yeah, again, so just like a bunch of organizations, a lot of departments, a lot of offices. But um, this is super cool. So like, hypothetically, how would this work as a, a process with all these agencies? Uh, so yeah, uh, if we were to give like a role play of this process with the different actors, uh, it might look something like this. Uh, so the president might consult with NASA and the Department of Defense on their space activity plans, such as like potential input for this policy draft uh, submitted to Congress. Uh, he or she also consults uh, with the National Security Council, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, and the Office of Management and Budget to consider uh, Congress's expected willingness to provide necessary funding levels for proposed programs. Once the president uh, policy draft or treaty is submitted to Congress. Uh, civilian policies are reviewed by the House Subcommittee on Space and Aeronautics and the Senate Subcommittee of Science and Space. Uh, these committees also oversee NASA's operations and investigations of accidents such as the 1967 Apollo 1 fire. Military policies are uh, reviewed and overseen by the House Subcommittee on Strategic Forces, the Senate Subcommittee of Strategic Forces, the House Permanent Select Committee of Intelligence, and the Senate Select Committee of Intelligence. Yeah, I really quickly wanted to say, like, before, you know, we kind of went more into, like, the role play, it's like, how do you, how long do you think this kind of a process would take with like the government and all these sorts of like offices? I mean, yeah, it definitely could take some time. I mean, there's definitely like other policies coming into play uh, at the same time as like space policy. So it's kind of like order, in order of like necessity, I guess you could say. Um, but I'm guessing that it could take like from anywhere to like a month to possibly like a couple of months uh, just to get like all of this uh right that's so yeah. true because at any given time you don't even just have these space policies that the government is going through processing right you have all of the other national local yeah, like every state like, policy especially now like there's definitely like more like actors coming into play um when like we're looking at like the government i mean like from social actors to like new economic actors like they're they're having to like kind of i guess you could say like budget their time and definitely like think about like whether or not like something is like in dire need of being passed or if like something could be pushed off a little bit later um so yeah it definitely could take some time so getting back into it uh the senate foreign relations committee uh would then conduct hearings on proposed space treaties and the various uh appropriation committees have the power over the budgets uh for space related agencies uh, space policy efforts are also supported by congressional agencies such as the Congressional uh, Research Service, the Congressional Budget Office, and the Government Accountability Office. Yeah, again, that is so many people involved. Yeah, and that's just from the side of government. That's not including, like, any other players. Oh, my God. So then outside of just, like, the U.S. government, um, there have been a lot of changes in the international policy sense especially when it comes to amendments or additional considerations that people want to make with like the current five or six governing treaties. Yeah. How so? Yeah. So like looking at the updates that people want to make to some of the treaties, we can start with the Outer Space Treaty that we mentioned earlier. So most prominently is the Bogota Declaration, which asserts sovereignty over those portions of the geostationary orbit that continuously lie over the signatory nation's territory. And this declaration has been signed by seven equatorial countries, Ecuador, Colombia, Congo, Zaire, and they were renamed in 1997 to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Then there's Uganda, Kenya, and Indonesia. Yeah, so from my understanding of uh, the challenge of the Outer Space Treaty with the Bogota Declaration, I don't think it got any wider international support or recognition, right? Like, was it subsequently abandoned? 
Yeah, but outside of that declaration, with the increase of private satellites and counter space technology since 2016, what we've seen is that there's been calls for an update to the Outer Space Treaty. And they actually talked about this topic, I think, a little bit more in depth in 2021 at the Outer Space Security Conference in Geneva, Switzerland. Again, really sad that I couldn't go. Uh, Were there like any other challenges uh, with any other treaties or just this one? Yeah, so there's actually been a lot of challenges to a lot of other treaties, not just the Outer Space Treaty. And like we also have to remember that a lot of these treaties were uh, really ratified and signed into place just when we started exploring space, right? And now since then, there's been more decades of development. Now we have more private actors, a lot of commercial activity that's starting to take place. So looking into some of the other resolutions that have been challenged and the reasons behind them, like one of the main notable treaties is the Rescue Agreement Treaty that we you know, talked about earlier. Yeah. And when the agreement was drafted, rescuing travelers in space was extremely unlikely and very difficult because of the limited launch capabilities of even the most advanced space programs. And, um, you know, we'll talk about this more later, but it's so expensive to travel into space. Like the amount of money you have to send um, that you have to spend just to send one person into space, if you then also had to rescue them with the limited technology, like you can imagine just how difficult that might be. So in some ways, um, there definitely had to be updates to the rescue agreement treaty in terms of like logistics. But more recently, it's become plausible for uh, given our technological advancements. But it's been really criticized for being vague, um, especially regarding the definition of who is entitled to be rescued and the definition of what constitutes a spacecraft and its component parts. So with like the increase of commercial space providers, this distinction has become a lot more relevant and it's raised questions as to whether space tourists are covered by the term, you know, personnel of spacecraft under the agreement. And there have also been calls to revisit these issues in international space law. Like, um, again, you know, and you can tell me more about this. Like, remember The Martian, that whole movie, when they had to go rescue him? Yeah. Um, I'm not even going to lie. I haven't seen The Martian. I have no, <laughs> I have not seen The Martian. I'm not, I'm not really into movies. I'm more of a show watcher if I, oh my if goodness. I really got to. Okay, make, well. Like, we're going to make you watch The Martian. Yeah, but I'll definitely get on it. in it, they have to rescue Matt Damon because he's like stuck on Mars. And that becomes a whole other fiasco because, again, like just with this rescue liability agreement, it's like, is it worth saving this person? How much are we going to spend to save this person? How long can they live there without us needing to get them? Like, is this a priority? And it also brings in a lot of like existential questions that need to be answered in you know, these sorts of international agreements going on with like the major question of like, how much value does a human life have? Like, is it genuinely worth doing, uh, going through all of this effort to rescue a person? And, and how much is a, a human being worth? And those are like those kind of philosophical existential questions also become very relevant in something like space policy, right? Yeah. And I definitely feel like speaking on that, I feel like also like the allocation of resources, like a lot of people are probably thinking like, why would we spend so much money to like, rescue one person or like a small group of people when that money could be distributed somewhere else to help more people. So I definitely feel like that's also like part of like the philosophical like questioning on whether or not like how much money should be used or like whether or not it should be even done in the first place or like, yeah, just in general. So for our viewers and definitely myself uh, who want some more context on this treaty, uh, can you talk about it a little bit more and like what are some recent developments uh, that have led to Yeah. So then we have like the liability convention. This was ratified in September 1st of 1972. The treaty expands on the liability rules created in the Outer Space Treaty. Its provisions state that the state bears international responsibility for all space objects launched within its territory. This means that regardless of who launches the space object, if it was launched from state's A territory or state's A facility, or if state A caused the launch to happen, then state A is fully liable for damages that result from that space object, regardless of where it goes. Um, In 1978, the crash of the nuclear-powered Soviet satellite Cosmos 954 in Canadian territory led to the only claim filed under the convention. And more recently, in July and October of 2021, China's Tiangong space station, with three astronauts aboard, performed, uh, performed what they called evasive maneuvers, to avoid collision with SpaceX's like Starlink satellites. So the liability convention does not introduce legal penalty penalties for leaving space debris in Earth's orbit. So we can see that again, like it's becoming ever so more relevant as time goes on. Oh my God, that literally sounds like insane. Given that all that is going on uh, with these treaties, I think it's important to touch on like the economic trends uh, concerning government 
investments uh, into SpaceX. Oh, yeah. No. Rule number one of economics is there's no such thing as a free lunch. I will forever remember that statement from every economics teacher and professor I've ever had. Shout out Mr. Clement from AP Economics. There's no such thing as a free lunch. But anyway, it's very interesting because there's so much expansion into space from the commercial sector and militaristic development as well. But like, I genuinely don't know why recent administrations have been cutting down NASA's budget, like seeing as they have led to so much of our technological development, you know? Yeah. So for her viewers are, uh, who are out there who are a little like confused on the statement, uh, NASA's funding has uh, been declining in recent years. According to the Wall Street Journal, the 2024 fiscal year budget proposed for NASA is a devastating 22% reduction from the previous year, resulting in a net loss of about $5.6 billion. Yeah. And, you know, the declining confidence in funding for NASA, like it genuinely threatens U.S. like technological ingenuity, I think. And, you know, it's potentially compromising over 250 current NASA projects, 125,000 jobs. and billions in preventative climate change innovation, if you really think about it. Like the rhetoric that's surrounding investment into space agencies has been alarmingly negative. Um, I remember reading this article by Ella Adams, and in her 2021 article, Spending on Space is Wasteful, she really alleged that federal investment into NASA is at best unnecessary because it has marginal impacts on the lives of everyday Americans. And at worst, funding NASA takes resources away from solving issues such as crime, food insecurity and inaccessible health care, um, which she said will still, you know, exist in America. Yeah, that is very interesting. We definitely like touched on like what some like possible points could be on like um, contradiction to like whether or not uh, we should put more investment into space. Um, I remember that Mark Rober, also USC alumni. Um, no, because we literally have the coolest graduates from our school. It's insane. Uh, which what he was saying about Mark Rober. Yeah, like uh, he made a YouTube video on his channel a couple years back uh, talking about how little the U.S. is spending uh, actually goes towards NASA, but just how important they are, including uh, when he worked there. Yeah, thankfully, there have also been some positive developments too. You know, as I was saying, the US has been expanding a lot militaristically in terms of their space development, or at least it seems to be that they're on that path. Um, they also created a new military division that split off from the Air Force called um, Space Force. So just giving a little bit more data on that. On December 20th of 2019, the United States Space Force was established with the passing of NDAA FY2020, or the National Defense Authorization Act of 2020. I don't know why I said 2020. <laughs> I should have recognized that it was mentioning a year. Oh, okay. So this happened during the Trump administration? Yeah. And actually, I think we should look into the different administrations' approach to space development and how it's changed from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. All right. Uh, so, well, at least for the Trump administration, I have some data on this. Uh, so on June 30th of 2017, uh, former President Donald Trump uh, signed an executive order reinstating the National Space Council, uh, which was chaired by former Vice President Mike Pence. Their budget request was to keep the Obama-era human spaceflight uh, programs in place. Commercial spaceflight to ferry astronauts to and from the ISS the government-owned space launch system, which was the launching system that NASA uses to send uh, vehicles into space, such as the Artemis moon landing mission um, and the Orion spacecraft, uh, plus a few crew deep space missions. Yeah, like the crew for deep space missions. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, I also have some more information on how they handled NASA during that time. And I think a lot of the budget reduction proposals came from them because the administration also reduced earth science research and called for the elimination of NASA's education office. That's so sad. Yeah, but he also did call for more private sector collaboration. I know that on uh, December 11th, 2017, uh, Trump signed Space Policy Directive uh, 1, which calls for private sector collaboration uh, relating to space endeavors, uh, providing the United States-led uh, integrated space program with private sector partnership uh, for a human return to the moon, uh, followed by a mission to Mars and beyond. Uh, the policy calls for NASA's administrator to lead an innovative and sustainable program for exploration with commercial and international partners to enable human expansion across the solar system and to bring back 
to earth new knowledge and opportunities. Yeah, I think they said that the effort will more effectively organize government, private industry and international efforts towards returning um, humans to the moon. And it will also lay the foundation that will eventually enable the human exploration of Mars. Um, I know that in 2020, the White House also issued their stance on national space policy to advocate for the expansion of like U.S. leadership in space and allow unrestricted access to space to champion private sector growth in the area. They also talked about how intersection, how international cooperation um, uh, could help a lot and how they want to establish a human presence on the moon with the eventual goal of a human mission to Mars. Okay, so like, when did this happen? It happened on December 9th of 2020. Um, Well, moving on from the Trump, the Biden administration has also made a lot of changes since the last election, and I think it's important to discuss that as well. Yeah, so I know that the uh, Joe Biden's press secretary expressed a lot of support for the Artemis program, uh, which wants to repeat history and land a man on the moon. Also accompanied by the first woman on the moon's surface and the first person of color. It is uncertain whether the Biden administration will retain the 2024 target, um, which we now know is not true. It will not happen before September 2025, which is still a little while away, but I mean, time has been flying. Um, and it's targeted for uh, the first crew landing as the Trump administration did. President Biden also expressed his approval for the United States Space Force. On December 1st, 2021, uh, the Biden administration issued a new framework for space policy called the United States Space Priorities Framework, where the administration pledges to invest in satellites that can observe Earth from space in an effort to better understand climate change. The framework also looks to invest in various STEM initiatives, though it is uh, light on other details, like overall together, yeah. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, I think it's also, I think the last important thing to cover for now uh, regarding the White House's stance on space policy is what they talked about in their national space policy framework. So on December 20th of 2023, so uh, close to about a month back, The White House issued some updates to their fact sheet, including some important developments to the national space policy framework. Vice President Kamala Harris announced the United States Novel Space Activities Authorization and Supervision Framework during the National Space Council meeting. And this new policy framework is designed to complement the National Council's legislative proposal called the Authorization and Supervision of Novel Private Sector Space Activities Act. This was sent to Congress in November. At the September 2022 National Space Council meeting, I remember Vice President Harris had talked to the NSPC to develop a new proposal for a clear and predictable authorization and supervision of commercial novel space activities, taking into account the issues about like safety in space, right? Yeah, I think it's also important to note that what the EC means by uh, the novel space uh, activities are those not directly regulated under current U.S. regulatory systems uh, for private sectors. So the proposal that they came up with has several different implications for the future moving forward, including the granting the Department of Commerce and Department of Transportation further authority to oversee novel space activities, which will facilitate innovation and further U.S. leadership in safety, security, and long-term sustainability for outer space activities. How do you think the framework is... Uh, based on and and do you have have you have read about like the White House's plan? There are a lot of key elements in this framework. Uh, so let me go over them real quick. Uh, it sets principles to guide the implementation of the framework uh, by departments and agencies. Um, it aligns rulemaking timeless or timeliness and uh, comment periods between the DOC and the DOT. Uh, requests DOC and DOT to uh, consider expanding existing or establishing a new federal advisory committees to uh, further framework implementation. It bolsters international collaboration uh, for the development and implementation of the best practices and standards maintaining U.S. leadership and setting rules for space. It also uh, directs the use of DOC and DOT internal processes uh, to recommend the best practices to guide private sector Space activities absent of additional legislation. It provides for updating U.S. government orbital debris mitigation standard practices, creates a knowledge of repository about the United States novel's private space sector 
activities to improve uh, U.S. government awareness, and it also establishes a standing private sector space activities interagency steering group to formulate longer-term space policy and best practices to inform the work of regulatory agencies. That was a mouthful. No, it was. Next time we should have it accompanied with elevator music because there are so many points in that framework, but um, it is very, very interesting. Yeah, I think it's a good framework overall, and it sets like the future um, endeavors that we want to continue um, in space, especially since uh, there's going to be a lot more key players involved, and now that the government isn't the only entity, involved in these uh, decisions. So establishing this framework at the forefront ensures that we have some clear direction of where we're going to go and how things uh, are going to be done. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. Um, I especially like the private sector space activities interagency steering group because I personally want to aid in developing policy for the long term as it relates to space. So I think that was really, really cool. I know that we shared a lot of data and information with you guys today uh, about what space policy is. A little bit about how it works, some historical context behind it, and some other uh, like current and previous administrations and what they've done with space policy. But at the end of the day, as we are all probably thinking, who cares? (laughs) I think a piece of my soul died when you said that. (laughs) I mean, uh, we definitely love our outer space, but there's definitely been a lot of people who don't see the value in space exploration um, as much as like... Ella Adams, who you mentioned earlier, um, and definitely a lot of other doubters. Yeah, interestingly enough, I remember hearing Representative Mo Brooks talk about how we shouldn't invest into NASA, um, actually in his speech back in 2019 in Congress. And he said uh, that we shouldn't invest into NASA because nowhere in the Bible does it say that we should study other planets. I'm literally shook, like no words. Yeah, there's definitely a lot to be discussed about why investing into space is important. And there's a lot of data to back that up as well. But I think we'd have a brief discussion about our opinions on that matter as well, don't you think? Yeah. So, well, space is important for many reasons. It started around like a curiosity of the human mind and the question about like what is above us. And eventually it's been cultivated into like an entire like new field of research. So it's clear that uh, there have been previous developments in the past. But all in all, the truth is that there will come a time when humanity will look to space as like a new home. Um, And I think getting a jump on exploring and researching the new frontier will better prepare us for when that time comes. Whether it's through missions being conducted in outer space to observe space uh, made from the ground, they have all helped secure humanity's spot in space. And, you know, I think space isn't something that we want to look to as like a last minute solution. And we've seen a long, a lot of just how long of a process it's been to get us to the stars. It's taken thousands of years, if you really think about it. I mean, we became the current species that we are and developed from apes into humans over hundreds of thousands of years, if you believe in evolution theory. And we only became able to develop even like languages around 50,000 years ago. So it has taken that long just for us to get to this point. And so in that sense, like procrastination for space exploration isn't really an option, I think, because we need to be ready to save humanity if the time comes that Earth is no longer habitable, which is becoming more and more likely given our you know, state of affairs with climate change. Funny enough, uh, this sounds exactly like the plot to WALL-E. I mean, everybody loves WALL-E. I was on IMDB last night and I saw that it was ranked in the top 250 movies of all time. Personally, I remember watching WALL-E and I think the message of the movie kind of went over our heads as a kid. I mean, we were so interested on um, WALL-E and Eva's like little love connection that they had going on, especially being robots. Um, but I recently watched the movie and I was able to see a call to action. It kind of like depicts Earth as like this trash planet, nothing left, like nothing left going for it. And I think that humans forget that with all the advancements that we have made, there's a possibility that in the long term, uh, the consequences will affect Earth. Humans are too stubborn to correct these previous tarnishes because they see it as something that betters humanity as a whole, but fail to realize that it may be better for humanity in present day, but it can have negative effects that will affect the generations that follow us. And I think Wally was an amazing job at depicting um, this kind of idea. And I think it goes to show that humans may have no choice but to migrate to space as a prevention for our species. 
or preservation, preservation. Not, not prevention <laughs> not, not supporting let's not mass prevent genocide even. of the entire united <laughs> or not entire human race uh. oh my god yeah you know i think from a philosophical sense as well um we as human beings are obsessed with legacy i mean we put our names on buildings and build marble statues to commemorate people who we believe have contributed enormously to our overall success and, and we read about people in our books and look back on all we have done for our history. And the thought of us as a species with all that we've accomplished, like ceasing to exist is one that's like really worrisome, you know? So expanding into space would not only help keep our legacy alive, but it would preserve the combined effort that humanity has made into bettering ourselves. I think if humanity were to represent any kind of value, it would be our resilience. Um, one that we see through all of the progress that we have made individually and collectively. And I want our values to drive us forward and drive space exploration forward because we are a resilient species and I personally want our legacy to live on. Yeah, I agree with that. We truly are an incredible species and I do hope that we live on, even that, if that takes us to some interstellar destinations. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think that's a wrap for today's episode. And, you know, we talked about a lot of, again, really cool things within this episode, what space policy is, what space policy encompasses. You know, we talked a lot about the Endeavor shuttle, you know, that's right behind us in California Space Museum, as long as it's here. And then we delve more into historical context. And then we went in through like the international, you know, space agreements. And I'll let you finish up on everything else that we covered. All right. Yeah, <laughs> we definitely have had a fun time here. Um, and we're sad to leave you guys. Uh, but don't worry, we will be back. I've been your co-host, Bailey Wilson. And I've been your host, DC. Next time, we'll be discussing in depth why investing into space matters with a lot more data, um, all the different ways humanity could possibly end and what we could do about it. Yeah, we truly hope that you've uh, thoroughly enjoyed today's episode of Space Chai. Uh, if you liked this episode, please like, share and follow us on our social medias. Let us know what other topics you'd like us to discuss in the future on Space Chai. Um, what tea you guys think is piping hot. So thanks for tuning in. And, and that's, that's the, the tea. tea.